0: Good morning. Um, Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 2. We will be reading from verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ.
1: Oh we have a good word this morning, church. And we get to continue our series called the Five Solas and if you haven't been with us uh, for the last month or so, uh, end of November beginning of December, we began a series of messages focusing on the heritage of truth that the Christians who have gone before us, especially the the pastors and leaders in the 16th century, what they have handed on to us by way as a gift. And that in the form of five solas, or that's Latin for onlys. And we've been working through those statements one at a time, and we were gloriously parked on Christ alone for the month of December, which was a pleasant surprise to me and a great joy as we lingered in Hebrews 2. Uh, But this morning, we are turning our attention to sola fide, or faith alone. And in that regard, I can think of no better scripture to linger in than Galatians chapter 2, where Peter just read from. So Lord, I pray that you would bless this preaching of your word. Would you fill me with unction? I pray that our ears would not be dull. Our eyes would not be dim. And our hearts would not be cold toward you, but that our eyes would be open, our ears would be inclined, and our hearts would be alive to your word, to the work of your spirit as you have been so graciously working and speaking already today. We thank you for this word and we pray that we would be doers, not merely hearers. We have no desire, Lord, to sit here and grow in intellectual understanding. We want to grow in our understanding that we might love you with all our heart and serve you with all of our soul. For there is no one like you, no one better than you, and we love you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I would dare to point out at the beginning of the year, friends, that we have as human beings an uncanny ability. And I would describe this uncanny ability this way. We have an uncanny ability to know something is true, but to live as if it's not. So, we know a credit card is not free money, but we spend as if it is. We know excess weight is bad for our health, and yet we eat as if it is not. We know friendships grow in the soil of of sacrificial love. And yet we spend our discretionary time in ways that are selfish or self-centered. We know we need to read God's word if we're going to experience spiritual life. But when push comes to shove, we choose Netflix. I want to ask you to raise your hand. I, I could just give countless examples of the same tendency to deny in our heart and through our life what we claim to believe in our mind. We have an uncanny ability to do that. And and nowhere is this tendency, which by the way isn't just uncanny, it is perverse. Because we're living a lie when we do that. Nowhere is that tendency more deadly that when it comes to the question that Paul takes up in Galatians 2, and that's this, on what basis am I right with God? On what basis do I know that I am, I'm right with God? I, I think many people in this room, although I do not presume all, know in your mind that you can only be right with God through faith in Christ. Salvation from sin and death isn't based on what we do for God, but on what God has graciously done for us. So we, we acknowledge as much in our minds. But a different conviction remains alive and well in our hearts. And and our secret thoughts, if if you were to put them up on the screen or your not-so-secret judgments of other people around you, reflect a persistent belief that we are right with God on the basis of our moral choices or our personal habits. So how do we know we are right with God? Well, because we have a budget and manage our money wisely. Or because we practice the spiritual disciplines and we are seven for seven in Bible reading in 2018. Or because our kids are well behaved. Or because we gave away a lot of money last year. Or or because we're one of those really committed Christians. And unlike those quasi members, we show up at every meeting. Or because we treat our friends or our spouse with, with decency and respect. Or because we stick to our word. We work hard in our job. We, we watch the right movies. We avoid bad language. Or we volunteer at church. Or, or I know it's because of this. Because my faith is so strong. And I happen to have all the right doctrinal convictions and beliefs. Unlike all those other Christians in that church. Suffice it to say. That's not the answer Paul gives to the question. How do we know we are right with God? And to all of you who right now are saying to yourself, like many of the children in that hallway, I know the I know, teacher, I know the answer. I make this request right now. This is my plea to you. Don't listen to this sermon. Merely to understand something new. If you're interested in that, I'm tempted to encourage you just to leave right now. Listen to this sermon asking God to help you recognize the ways that you are denying in your heart and through your life the things that you claim to believe in your mind. Because if Satan can't convince you to consciously and deliberately deny the truth of the gospel, then he will turn to more subtle tactics. He will will seek to saturate your mind with words like grace and faith and and righteousness and justification and, and Jesus until you've heard a thousand sermons and you've grown numb to the things of God. And you fail to perceive just how far you have have drifted away from the only hope of your salvation. Listen, the enemy of your soul could care less what you believe in your mind. What he's interested in. Because what ultimately matters is what do you trust? What do you cling to in your heart, friend? Where does your confidence lie? Because if your confidence to be made right with God is in any way dependent on your works then you will be condemned and you will perish. But if your confidence is dependent on the work of Christ, then you will be justified and you will live. So remember the central question. On what basis can we be made right with God? That's that's the issue on the table here. And, And Paul first answers that question negatively. What it's not. What's not the answer? Then he answers it positively. What is the answer? And then he deals with a major objection to his answer. And his first point is this. Point number one. Works of the law will not make you. Right with God. That will make you right with God. Look at verse 16. Whenever you see something repeated over and over again in the Bible, you can pretty much safely assume it's really important, one. And two, God knows we are incessantly prone to forget it. So this phrase, verse 16, works of the law is no exception. It shows up three times in verse 16 alone. But in order to understand what Paul means by that, we we don't want to just insert our understanding. We want to understand what he means by that. Look down in your Bible if you have one. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, where Paul writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone, listen, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So what's the book of the law? Well, the book of the law, as the, the original Jewish recipients of the letter to the Galatians, all knew was a common way of describing all the instructions or laws that God had given his people in the Old Testament. Because the Bible teaches us, friends. That there is a universal standard of right and wrong that doesn't come from us and isn't governed by us. It's determined by God. As our creator and king, he determines what is morally right and morally wrong. So when you see in verse 16 of chapter 2 That a person is not justified by, by works of the law. The law there is not what you think is right, or what I think is right, or what, what other people think is right. It's what God says is right, because God is the lawgiver. That's who He is. And so when Paul speaks of works of the law, he's talking about obedience to the written law of God doing everything God commands and, and nothing that God prohibits. And it's that obedience, the works of the law, that Paul argues three times in verse 16 is utterly and completely inadequate as a means of justification. Now, to be justified, we've got a lot of words to define here, as Paul uses that word, simply means to be declared justified. Right with God. That's all it means. It's an instantaneous legal act. A verdict, if you would, from from God, from the judge of the universe by which he counts us righteous as he is righteous. And holy as as he is holy and and welcomes us into his presence accordingly. That's, That's not a verdict. That's not a decision that we get to make. It's not your judgment. It's a judgment God makes. Which is why, notice in verse 16, justification is always passive. It's not something that we do. It's something that is done to us. God is the actor. We are the recipient. We're the object. And three times in this verse, Paul says that we are not justified. By works of the law. The first time he says it is is general. The second time is more personal. And the third time is, is universal. By works of the law, look at the end of verse 16. No one will be justified. Now, why is that the case? Why is it that that our moral conduct, our obedience to God's commands, is hopelessly and completely inadequate as a basis for God declaring us righteous? Well, it's not complicated, friends. I I hope you're not sitting there thinking, hmm, I really don't know. If we're honest, we all know. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of, Of the glory of God. Okay, the reason you can't be justified or made right with God on the basis of your works is that none of us are perfect. We've all disobeyed God's laws, and not just once or twice, but over and over again, including the big ones. So, so what does Jesus say? If you've hated somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Right or, or if you've lusted after someone in your mind, you're guilty of adultery. And to the degree you, you might sit here or listen to me and beg to differ, to, to whatever degree you think of yourself, as you're hearing me say those things, hold on, Williams, I, I'm a decent person. I'm a good person. Well, know this, friend. That conviction is only sustainable because you are comparing yourself to men. That's the only way that works. But it's not with men that we have to do. It's with God. Listen to these words from Francis Turreton. But when we rise to the heavenly tribunal and place before our eyes that supreme judge, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, at whose strength the mountains melt, by whose anger the earth is shaken. Whose justice not even the angels are equal to bear? Who does not make the guilty innocent? Whose vengeance, when once kindled, penetrates even the lowest depths of hell? Then, in an instant, the vain confidence of men perishes; it falls. And conscience is compelled to confess that it has nothing upon which it can rely before God. So it cries out with David, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Friend, the whole point of God giving us his law, the whole point was to prove to our arrogant hearts time after time after time again that we are not righteous, that God is righteous. That's the whole point. No, no amount of obedience on your part will ever change that. Why not? Because our obedience is never perfect. You you disobey the law of God at one point, and what does God say? You are guilty of breaking the whole thing, The, the whole enterprise of works righteousness, justifying myself before God. Making myself right with God. That whole enterprise just comes crashing down the very first moment you disobey even the smallest part of God's law. It doesn't work. But I will freely admit to you that I wish it would. Why do I say that? Because I like to flatter myself. I do. I want to pull my own weight. Something very deep inside of me that that longs to do that. I want to prove to God and the rest of the world that if there's a standard, I can reach it. And if there's a benchmark, I can overcome it. I can shatter it. There's something within us that is appealed to by the Nike commercial, just do it. want to do it. I want to prove myself. And every other world religion taps into that desire. It encourages us to establish our own righteousness. It's all about being a good person and doing your best. That's the one thing that makes Christianity different than every other world religion. Rightly understood, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not send you out to make yourself right with God by what you do. Every other world religion does that and it is the height of arrogance and self-deception. And I warn you that if you try to play that game, friend, there's only one thing you'll prove. Look at verse 17. You'll prove yourself to be, verse 18, a transgressor. That's all you'll do. That's what the law was meant to prove. It was meant, it was given by God to point out our transgressions, but it points them out for a reason, friend. It points them out so that that we would despair of saving ourselves, right? And run to Jesus, not just one day, but every day as our savior. I love how Martin Luther points this out. One of the Protestant reformers, listen, As the dry earth thirsts for rain, so the law makes the troubled heart thirst for Christ. you see that? To such hearts, hearts that know I can't make myself right with God. Christ tastes sweetest. To them, he is joy, comfort, and life. Point number one. Works of the law will not make you right with God. Point number two, only faith in Christ will make you right with God. Look, look back at verse 16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. So faith... Hear this, is the exact opposite of relying on works of the law. Okay, so so works of the law say I can convince God to declare me righteous by making myself righteous. Faith says I renounce any and all effort at making myself righteous, and I cast myself wholly and completely on the merits of my righteous Savior. Jesus Christ, who who lived for me and died for me and, and rose for me. Faith lets go of my righteousness through which I can never be justified, and it clings, it holds to the righteousness of Christ by which we are completely justified. Which raises this question how in the world is that possible? How can the perfect righteousness of the Son of God become the basis on which God justifies me when I continue to sin all over the place? That's the question, right? Well, the answer, the glorious answer is this. It's the doctrine of our union with Christ, friends. Your union with Christ. We don't talk about this enough. It's union with Christ that faith secures. So so think of it this way. Faith is the instrument. It's the means. It's not the basis or ground. It's the instrument or means by which God unites us to Christ. Such that what is ours becomes his. And what is his becomes ours. So God imputes my sin to Christ's account, which is why he suffered and died. And then God imputes Christ's righteousness to my account, which is why I am justified and live. It's union with Christ that makes that happen. I I love how John Calvin says it. You see that righteousness is not in us, but it's in Christ." And that we possess it only because we are partakers in Christ. You might not know this, but but that issue. That we only possess it because we're partakers in Christ. That that is precisely the point where the 16th century reformers parted ways with the Catholic Church. That's the issue. The Catholic Church taught that God justifies us because of a righteousness that he works within us. And men like Luther and Calvin, persuaded by scriptures like Galatians 2.16, vehemently denied that. Categorically denied that. Why? Because God doesn't justify us because of something inherent in us. He justifies us because of something inherent in Christ that becomes ours only through faith union with him. That's why. And it's your union with Christ, Christian. The, the in Christ nature of your justification that keeps God's declaration of righteous over your life from being an act of legal fiction. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we think like this, okay? Let's, let's be honest. We think of Jesus' righteousness as, as some sort of cloaking device. If you've ever played, maybe played some video games over the holidays. You know, shield powers. Okay, so we, we think of it as some sort of cloaking device that when it, whenever God tries to look at us, like, I'm going to look at Williams, Jesus kind of darts between us like, ha, ah, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, 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 Matthew's over here and God's scanning, scanning. Oh, there's Williams. Hey, look at me, look at me. And, and Jesus is just kind of constantly inserting himself between us and God. And whenever God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Like a cloak. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's the world of video games. Okay, that's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus is righteous and Jesus is justified and he's found a way to hide you from the father's wrath. Okay, no, no. The good news of the gospel is that by faith you have been united to Christ. Christ. And what was eternally his now becomes eternally yours. For real, such that the basis of his righteousness and his righteousness alone is why you are truly and eternally and decisively and really justified. It's not a cloak, it's not legal fiction. You're united to Christ by faith. What is his is yours. That's why you're justified. And friend, please, 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 don't allow yourself to think for one minute that it's the strength of your faith that earned you that gift. You're not justified because of your faith. You can tweet that if you want. You're not justified because of your faith. You're justified because of the righteousness of Christ. Okay? Faith is simply the means through which we lay hold of his righteousness. In that sense, it's it's the instrument of our salvation. It's, It's never the basis. The presence of faith doesn't make you righteous because your faith will never be perfect. Right? It's not rocket science. Our faith is always mixed with with unbelief, with doubt. Rather, how are we justified? We're justified through faith, the instrument of faith, because it's faith that lays hold of the righteousness of Christ. And it's on the basis of his righteousness that we're justified. Not on the basis of our faith. Listen to what Martin Luther says on this point. Therefore, Christ seized by faith. And living in the heart is the true Christian righteousness for which God counts us righteous and gives us eternal life. This is the truth of the gospel. Amen. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. When a guy like Luther says something like that, all Christian doctrine, all godliness, your ears just do. Pay attention. All right. Most necessary it is therefore that we should know this article well. Teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) I read that. I thought, for real? Where's your editor? But he's right. Without apology, that is precisely what I'm trying to do this morning. Beat into your head, my head that my good works cannot make me right with God. Only faith in Jesus Christ will make you right with God. We need that beat into our head. We don't move on from that. The Galatians needed it beat into their head. And like we so often do, the reason is because they started drifting. From justification by faith alone they were sorely tempted to go back to trusting the works of the law to to make them right with god and listen it appears if you read the whole book of letter to the galatians that at least part of the problem was that there were false teachers whispering in their ears jews who were telling them this this whole faith alone business guys It completely undermines the necessity of good works and obedience. They even went so far as to call the Galatians, if you look back up at verse 15. Sinners, Gentile sinners, they were convinced that, these false teachers, that Paul's gospel was essentially a license to sin without any consequences. And and you can track with them on one level, right? I mean, if, if after all, I'm justified by faith and not by good works, then why even bother obeying God? Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, Paul deals with that objection in three ways. Remember I said he would answer the question negatively. It's not good works. Positively, faith alone in Christ. Well, now he deals with the objection. And he does it in three ways. First, he flat out denies it. Certainly not. Or absolutely not. Or or may it never be so. And then second, he turns the Jews' logic back on their own head. So so he says to the Galatians, essentially, let's just say you join these false teachers in putting yourself back under the yoke of the law as a means of justification. Let's just play out that scenario, guys. Okay, run the tape on that. What do you see? You see this. There's only one possible outcome. That law that you are now seeking to obey as a means of making yourself right with God, there's one outcome from that. You're going to be condemned. Guaranteed. You're going to be found to be, verse 18, a transgressor. That's the whole point of the law. So he denies it. He turns the logic back. And then, verses 19 to 20, he argues for the exact opposite. Namely, that when we are trusting Christ alone to make us right with God, that the result of that is not a life of license and sin. But it's life of holiness. Paul essentially says, look at verses 19 and 20, friends. Faith in Christ is the only way you can be justified, but your faith union with Christ doesn't just result in being declared righteous. It also results in being made righteous. Point number three, to share in the death of Christ is to share in the life of Christ. To share in the death of Christ is sharing share in the, the life of Christ. Verse 18, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now we have to think carefully here. There's a lot going on here. When Paul says he died to the law, he means he died to the law as a means of justifying himself before God. Because the law itself, what? It condemned him. It condemned him, just like it condemns us. But, but death to the law as a means of justification wasn't an end in itself. It had a goal, had a purpose. Paul died to the law, what? So that he could be set free to live to God. Do you see that? Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might sin all over the place. No, so that I might live to God. So that I could pursue and, and enjoy a life of holiness and, and consecration and obedience to God's commands in every area of life. But how is that possible? I mean, it sounds like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. On the one hand, it's not my works that make me right with God. But on the other hand, when I die to all that attempt, which will epically fail, you're saying that somehow I result, as a result, I end up doing good works? But, but I... What gives? Well, it works like this. It works like this, friend. Remember that, that through faith, we're united with Christ. Such that when he died, you died. We died. As Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, because all of you are sitting here looking at me and listening attentively, I trust, you, you obviously aren't dead, a physical sense, he's speaking in a spiritual sense here that the man Paul was before coming to faith in Christ, condemned by the law, enslaved to sin, that man no longer exists. That's what he's saying. Why not? Because union with Christ has, has worked such a, a momentous and decisive change in Paul's life that he became a new man, a new creation. There's a new principle of spiritual life and power at work in Paul that doesn't just come from Christ like some sort of spiritual booster pack. He's like, hey, Merry Christmas, some spiritual life. Thanks, Jesus. No, no, what is it? What do we have? What's this new principle? Look at verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, it's not that Christ Jesus gives us a spiritual principle of power. He gives us himself. Christian, if you are in Christ, Christ Jesus, this very moment, is not just up in heaven somewhere. He's inside of you. He dwells in you. Through the Holy Spirit that he's given you, the Spirit of God himself, and, and even now he is working to make you, the Spirit of God, holy as Jesus is holy and make you righteous as as Jesus is righteous. As Paul said to the Philippians, it's God who works in you. So to share in the death of Christ is to share in the life of Christ because they are both found in union with him. Now, we've got to be really careful here. And this is going to require some juice. (laughs) We've got to be really careful here. Because there is a world of difference, friends. World of difference. Between being justified or declared righteous by God. And being sanctified or made righteous by God. Enormous difference. So follow me here. It's only through faith in Christ that we are justified made right with God. We, we contribute nothing to our justification. It's not a cooperative effort. You do a little bit, Jesus does the rest. No, Christ does everything. Okay, why do I say that? Well, because the contrast in verse 16 could not be more stark. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. You don't get both. It's either or. And the first never works. The second always does. And that means, please hear this. That means, Christian, that you cannot be more or less righteous in the sight of God tomorrow than you are right now. Think about that, okay? Because the basis of your justification is nothing less than the perfect righteousness of God himself, And God is not about to become more righteous tomorrow than he is today. (laughs) And thus, you can't be more justified or more accepted or more welcomed or more worthy of the love and affection of God in Christ than you are today. Your welcome before the Father depends on nothing less than the unchangeable character of the righteousness of the Father. That's remarkable. That set Martin Luther's head spinning. That the righteousness of God wasn't just something that lingers over me as a law that condemns me. But it's a gift that God gives to me through faith in Christ. Turn the world upside down. We're justified by faith alone. But, he felt this coming. The faith through which we are justified is never alone. It's evidenced, it's accompanied by by a life of good works such that everyone who is truly justified will be inevitably sanctified. Why do I say that? Well, because... Both are possible through union with Christ. Again, to quote Calvin, although we may distinguish between them, justification and sanctification, Christ contains both of them inseparably in himself. You can no longer pick one of those, then you could split Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at when he declares that it's, that it's Christ who lives in me. So all who have been counted righteous in Christ in a judicial sense, will be made righteous by Christ in an experiential sense. Now, there's a final point Paul wants to make here. We do well to heed. Please hear this. Faith in Christ is just as critical for your sanctification as it is for your justification. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Why do do I say that? Well, look at verse 20, church. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, point number four, our entire life in Christ is a life of faith. Our entire life. In Christ is a life of faith. Here's what we tend to do, okay? If I can just point out the obvious, at least what I think is obvious. We tend to begin the Christian life rejoicing and celebrating that we're right with God. We've got this new relationship with God. We used to think it was all about being a good person. Now it's, whoa, I'm freed from that. It's through faith in Christ that I'm made right with God. And there's joy in that and gratitude for that. And we get baptized and the church claps and applauds and it's great! And then... We start trying to follow him. The disciple thing and following him in every area of life we suddenly discover is really, really hard, really hard, including for pastors. And before too long, the joy that we used to experience in our relationship with God, it just isn't there anymore. It's not the same. We know in theory that we're right with God through faith in Christ, but it, but it feels like we, we left anything that's remotely faith-filled or joy-giving like a thousand miles behind us. And now this Christian life is just pure, hard Brothers and sisters, that is precisely what Paul denies in verse 20. Look at that. It's what he denies in verse 20. Because we are not only justified through faith, we are also sanctified through faith. In other words, faith isn't just the opening chapter in our relationship with God. It's the entire story. It's the theme of the whole. So what does Paul say? The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. He excludes any and all notion that faith is merely the doorway in. After which hard work and good works is all you got. The life I live. When? Now I live by faith in the son of God. So, so how does that work? I mean, it makes sense that we're justified by faith. But, but how are we sanctified by faith? How are we made holy through faith? Well, I think it means at least two things on a very practical level. And I'll conclude with this. First, make Jesus the supreme object of your trust in every situation. Do that, friend. We, we, don't, we don't live the Christian life by faith in the sense that we walk around with a generic belief in the importance of spirituality. I mean, that's all over the cable news or, or subjective confidence that, you know, thanks to the man upstairs, we're all just going to go to a better place when we die. So thoughts and prayers to those hurting people. That, that's not biblical faith. Okay, the faith Paul speaks about here has a specific object. Namely, the Son of God. What does Paul say? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in general. No! Religious feelings in general. Being a spiritual person in general. Attending church in general. No, I live by faith as an object in the Son of God. So, what does that mean? Well, it means... Paul's talking about a kind of life where all our thoughts, words, and deeds in every situation, please hear this, are fueled and guided by a singular trust in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. So, we navigate marriage conflicts with an abiding trust in Christ. We respond to rebellious children with an abiding trust in Christ, we, we handle financial difficulty with an abiding trust in Christ. And, and we persevere in difficult friendships with an abiding trust in Christ. Why? Because faith has an object and that object is Jesus Christ. But that raises a question, at least in my mind. Exactly what is it about Jesus that we're trusting? Let I me mean, think about this. In, in, in any relationship... You never just trust someone. I mean, you can try, but you're just pretending, right? You always trust them to be a certain kind of person or to do certain kinds of things. And and typically, our trust is based on a a personal history or a track record where that person has shown themselves to be worthy of our trust over a period of time. We get that. So hear this. Your trust in Jesus should be no different. No different, okay? Which leads to the second point of application. If, If the first is choose to make Jesus the supreme object of your trust in every situation, the second point of application is this. Second, specifically direct your trust toward Jesus' love for you, the character of his heart, and Jesus' provision for you, the nature of his work, Okay, that's the answer to the why trust Jesus. Two things. The character of his heart, his love for you. The nature of his work, his his provision for you. Notice that Paul doesn't stop in the middle of verse 20 with calling us to live a life of faith in the Son of God. He gives us two unshakable reasons why we should trust Christ. Namely, that he is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's apply that, okay? You know what happens when you enter a marriage conflict? Or a meeting with a really critical coworker, With an abiding confidence that Jesus loves you. Well here's what happens. You're, you're empowered to repay their evil with good. Why? Because you don't need that person to affirm you. You're not living to earn their love and approval. You already have all the love and approval that matters most from God as a free gift. And no one can take that away from you. And when you need people less, surprise, surprise, you're free to love them more. Let me give you another example, okay? You know what happens when you enter a year of financial strain or physical illness with an abiding confidence that Jesus gave himself for you? Well, here's what happens. You don't live with paralyzing fear and worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because you trust that if God would shed his very own blood for you, which, by the way, isn't just gory and gruesome, it's the most priceless gift he could ever give you. There's nothing more valuable in the universe than the life of God himself. And it is that, precisely, that he gave to you. And if you enter that year of financial strain, or that year of physical illness and difficulty, confident with an abiding trust that Jesus gave himself for you, then you're not anxious and worried because you know that he will certainly not fail to provide everything else you need for life and godliness. So so living by faith in the Son of God means confidence in Jesus' love towards us and his provision for us in every situation. Listen to this summary again from Calvin. In the spirit of the reformers. Now we shall possess a right definition of faith. If we call it, what is this faith thing you're going on about? A firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. His love toward us. Founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ. Both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So know this, friend, when I say that our entire life in Christ is a life of faith, I mean that faith isn't just the means by which we enter relationship with God. It's also the means by which we grow in our relationship with God. It is, if you would, the wellspring of our obedience. Because there's no such thing as an act of genuine obedience that's not an expression or fruit of faith. I mean, obedience necessarily consists of a whole lot more than faith. Okay? Our our sanctification involves a lot more than simply remembering our justification. But... It's only when faith is fueling our obedience and faith is guiding our obedience that obedience even becomes possible and obedience becomes a joy. That's what it means to say that our entire life in Christ is a life of faith. Remember the central question, friend. How can you be right with God? Galatians 2 gives us this answer. Works of the law will not do it. Only faith in Christ will do it. So don't, verse 21, nullify the grace of God. Righteousness doesn't come through the law. And to the degree that you, friend, are living or requiring other people to live, as if it does, you are proclaiming through your life that Christ died for no purpose. That's Paul's conclusion in verse 21. Don't do that, friends. Don't do that. Christ died for a purpose. He died to make you right with God. So stop trusting yourself and, and trust him. And know that when you do, when, when by faith you are united to Christ, you don't just share in his death, you, you share in his life such that your entire life in Christ becomes a life of faith. And for that reason, I I can think of no better news to share with you at the start of this new year than this, that we are declared right with God only through faith. And then we are progressively made righteous like God through faith as well. Let's remember that this year and ask for God's help. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this precious doctrine of faith alone. I pray, God, that wherever we are in our heart and life, living as if we're better with you, better standing, better terms, more right with you because of what we do or don't do, that you would grant us the gift of repentance. Help us see it's not just wrong, but it's arrogant. I pray you would make us a church that is living by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. And that you would open our eyes to see how a singular faith in you is the wellspring and source of every true act of obedience. Lord, help us keep Things separate that need to be kept separate the basis on which we're made right with you and the means through which you make us more like you we tend to confuse those and walk about condemned discouraged weary we pray Lord Jesus that we would live this life this year in you And we would do it with the abiding confidence that it is you who live in us. For your glory we pray. Amen.